Hi, Kim. Hi, Ivy. I miss you, ladies. I miss you too, Kate. I miss you too, Kate, Ivy. I miss your beautiful and intelligent souls, and I miss our discussions around the issues facing 21st century teaching and learning and education. This quarantine has prevented me from getting my CNUSD EdChat team fix. There is nothing like collaborating with ladies you personally trust, especially in this group. And I love that we can process the moves we personally make as educators, and we can also spend some time analyzing the larger structures of education. I could not agree more. You know, it's like our discussions really help all of us sort out our priorities, especially as we strive to, you know, keep serving students and, and teachers and schools and, and really each other. And that's what I've always valued the most in, in our friendship and our collaboration. So to all of our listeners out there, today we're going to chat with another dynamic group of leading ladies, Dr. Trudy Ariaga. Dr. Dolores Lindsay and Dr. Stacy Stanley. You know, this one was really a fun, fun one for me, and it left me feeling so empowered. So these three educational leaders are the authors of Leading While Female, which as Corin Press states, is a guide to help both women and men educational leaders confront and close the gender equity gap. This book has led to a Twitter hashtag, Leading While Female, and there is now even a Facebook group with over 1,000 members. And of course, we all have our own copies. Yes, we do. So, Amory, Kim, Kate, and I gathered together with these amazing educators via Zoom. Let's go ahead and listen in. If you wouldn't mind giving us a little background, your educational background, and how actually I'm curious of how you all came together to form this dynamic trio that you are. Thank you so much for having us. I'm Trudy Ariaga, and I come to you from Ventura, California. Gosh, how, how we came to know each other is, you know, uh, so connected in terms of who we are as women and the backgrounds and experiences we've had. But um, I'm a former superintendent of a school district in Troy Unified, where I led for 14 years uh, as the first female superintendent in um, the school district. And uh, 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 prior to that, held many seats within a local K through 12 district from teacher to paraeducator to principal to director and then ultimately the superintendent. Uh, in my retirement, I've, I've failed miserably and I'm currently the associate dean of equity and outreach at Cal Lutheran University, a, um, a local uh, private university here in Southern California and also very privileged and proud to be the co-author of Opening Doors with Dr. Randy Lindsay and now our, our most recently published book, Leading While Female, with my two um, very esteemed colleagues and my very, very good friends. And I'll open it up to let them introduce themselves. Well, my name is Dr. Stacy Stanley, and I come to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota, from the Twin Cities. And I think it is fair to say that what has brought all of us together is the grounding with the tools of cultural proficiency that is the foundation of any roles that we've held. I've, um, I currently serve as associate superintendent in a district just outside of Minneapolis, and I've used those in every role that I've held, whether it was director of curriculum assessment instruction, whether it was as a principal. And I just had the good fortune to meet first Dolores and then Trudy and to have these incredible women 
as mentors, as coaches, as guides, uh, as I travel through my career experience in education as an educational leader. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Dr. Dolores Lindsay. I uh, live in Southern California near San Diego. And I've had the pleasure of knowing these two uh, incredible women uh, for a long time. I've retired as a member of the profession, uh, but I, uh, from institutions, I guess I've retired from those, but not from the profession itself. I'm delighted to be a part of this team. And when we decided this was what we were going to do, um, this is one book of about 16 or 17 about cultural proficiency. But uh, as uh, authors, we'd never address the issue of gender inequities. So we decided uh, to take it on. And um, the three of us met around um, the kitchen table here in Escondido and mine and Randy's home. And uh, we decided that we needed to hear from women, uh, the voices of uh, educational leaders. And as we started doing our lit reviews, we realized that there was an absence of women of color uh, as executive leaders. Well, that got us really fired up. We said, this is the area of research that we need to go deeper. The three of us being researchers, then uh, we continued uh, doing our research, the lit review, and then actual interviews, not only of women, but for men as well. Uh, the mentors, uh, male mentors, uh, how women get to where they are or the barriers that get in the way. So um, that's a little bit about who we are as the three of us and how we came together for this one book more thinking just contextually, it's 2020. Why Why do we need this book now, Leading While Female? Well, uh, this is Trudy, and I'll, I'll take a, a crack at that and say that for us, um, the why became a very, very important question. And I would say, you know, an answer, there's probably three uh, answers to that. And the first one is that uh, we were taken with a quote by Toni Morrison. If there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And so we took that quote and all talked about how, gosh, we wanted to read that book. We wanted to read the book about educational leadership and women in educational leadership and our unique barriers and what has propelled uh, those who have managed to you know, become the CEOs and the chief technology officers and the superintendents. And so uh, that quote from Toni Morrison inspired us. I would say probably the next why is that we are all grandmothers and uh, we happen to all be grandmothers of daughters. And we take our roles very, very seriously in terms of handing a baton uh, to the next generation of women. And we know that our granddaughters, as well as our grandsons, that they're watching. And we want the view for our own children to be um, a view of equity and access and opportunity for each and every one of them. And then finally, why now? Why this book? Um, gosh, the compelling data uh, that uh, just compelled us to write the book, that we are not satisfied 
as women in leadership with 77% of the teachers in this nation being women and yet 24% of the superintendents in this nation are women. Uh, we are the essential workers in education and why on earth do we not follow suit and be the essential leaders um, in educational institutions. And then as Dolores mentioned, when you dig deeper into that data, um, the dismal, dismal data of uh, women of color, women of the LGBTQ plus community um, who have not reached the heights of um, executive leadership. And it is not because we are not competent. It is not because we are not prepared. Um, so we, we wanted to know why. And uh, particularly now, you know, in this era uh, when um, equity is being uh, exposed uh, during this pandemic, like we've never seen it be exposed before, certainly the protests in our streets uh, in regards to um, uh, racial injustice, you know, it, it, the time is just so right. Uh, to make sure that we are shining the light on equity in all areas. And for us, it was the opportunity to shine the light on equity in regards to gender issues. Thank you so much for that response. There's definitely a lot for us to think about um, as female leaders ourselves in the room. What do you hope women gain from reading this book? And what do you hope men may gain from reading this book? We really appreciated that question and we appreciated that you included men because this is a book written by women, about women, uh, for men and women. Uh, feminism is not about uh, women joining a club that is just for women. Feminism is about people coming together and uh, making certain that we are all doing our part, both men and women. So thank you for framing the question in that way. Uh, we want women to gain from this book to just know that they are equipped and capable. Um, and that, uh, um, that moving forward is not something that they have to do alone. That as women in their circles, that we will mentor, we will guide, we will network um, to make sure that um, the next generation of women, you know, have a baton held to them um, as, they, as they're running the next lap. And um, so there's just so much that we wanted women to know. We also wanted women to know that they are not alone in their experiences. And the experiences are not the experiences of their grandmothers in terms of inequities. Those are experiences that exist in our institutions today. Uh, we, want, uh, we want women to know of their very unique contributions that they bring to the, to the table. And we want women to know, we don't want a seat at the table, we want a voice at the table. You know, we want, we want our own table um, to make sure that we are in positions where we have a voice, an important voice within the organization. Um, so there's so much that we want women to know. And, and here's what we want men to know. We want men to know that we need them. Uh, we need men as our allies. We need men to, uh, to mentor us as well and to network with us. Um, we need men to understand that there are support factors that we have identified in our research that they themselves can do or lead that will assist us to change the data of women in, in executive leadership and education. So uh, again, this book is written for men and women, and uh, we believe that uh, if you dive deep into the information in the book and look at the barriers and the support factors that you can change organizations, and you can certainly change the trajectory of the lives of women.
you talk about pitfalls, pipelines, and pathways throughout the book. Can you explain each of these terms to our listeners? This is Stacy. You know, the pitfalls are the long-held, exquisitely designed systems that were created to make certain that men were placed in a position of privilege and entitlement that they were able to swiftly move up in the roles of executive leadership, even though females who were incredibly prepared and qualified to hold the positions would be held back. And so I always like to tell the story about the role of the secretary. And you might find this pretty interesting because you know, we wouldn't necessarily see the role of a secretary as an important role. And in the 20s and 30s, secretaries were, that role was mostly held by men. It was considered a distinguished role. It was a role, it's where the roles of like secretary of state, secretary of defense came from. And it was esteemed. That individual had a lot of, uh, a lot of privilege had a lot of influence and often moved up into higher roles within an organization. Somewhere around the 40s and 50s, women started to hold the role of secretary. Suddenly it was not a role that was designed to actually help the female to move up into the organization of executive roles. That is an example of a pitfall. That is something that was exquisitely designed to make certain that females would not move up within an organization. Now, pipelines. Pipelines are places of influence. That is where the doors are opened. That is where we move from in exquisitely designed systems of privilege to intentionally designed systems that are setting females up to be successful. Whether that includes um, the intentional pairing of mentors, making certain that females have sponsors. So not just the individual that can build the capacity and coach, but the individual that is going to get on the phone, that is going to write the letter, that is going to at strongly advocate for that female to move into that executive role, to move into that C-suite. Pathways I think are the most powerful, quite honestly, because oftentimes, even if we have uh, the pipeline to get there, those pipelines take us on detours sometimes. They don't put us in the position where we are working on uh, projects or we're getting experiences where that are truly preparing us for, in, in our case, in, in the field of education, the superintendency. Without those pathways, it can take us longer to move into the role of superintendency than it would our male counterparts. You know, Dr. Stanley, I, I do find it highly interesting what you're saying as far as um, how the role of secretary holds uh, different connotations from what it once did, you know, in the past. And find that in many situations, especially as far as how society is looking at certain roles and how those roles are perceived. And interestingly enough, when we look at the history of K-12 public education and the role of teacher, and how the role of teacher is primarily a, a female role now, the connotations and, uh, that are attached to that are far different from what they were you know, in, in the past. Highly interesting 
among many other adjectives that I could use to, to describe that. But, but with that said, um, I'm wondering, and I'm sure our listeners would really want to know, what were some of the most interesting or profound findings that you uncovered in your research, in addition to what you just simply stated, you know, around the word secretary? The most fascinating aspect of our research was bringing together what we thought would be maybe 20 women on a Saturday to dialogue about their experiences and moving into leadership roles. And it expanded to well over 30 women who came to share their experiences. This group was incredibly diverse, diverse in experience, diverse in when they entered the profession. I mean, I think that there was a good three decades worth. So folks who had been in the profession for you know, 20, 30 years, folks were entering into their leadership roles. One of the most profound things that we found is that we would hear from a female leader who was towards the end of her, let's say, K-12 leadership experience. She may have been moving on to, you know, higher ed or something like that. And she would talk about the experiences that she had, the, the barriers that she experienced, and Right after that, an individual who was early in their career, maybe just starting the principalship, would say, that just happened to me last year. And so that let us know we have come some way, not necessarily a long way. Those same experiences and barriers are there for the individuals who are early in their career. Another thing that we found is that women are mentored. Women, we, we have that individual that is going to coach us, that is going to be a cheerleader for us. We are not sponsored. We do not have someone who is picking up the phone and saying, you need to hire her. She has this skill or that skill that your organization needs. Men, they have sponsors. Too often, someone is going to pick up the phone for them and say, you need to hire him right now. This is what he can bring to your organization. The other thing that we found is sometimes as we move, as we women move up within the organization, we can become barriers ourselves for women, barriers in the promotion of women. It is that strange experience of finally making it to the position and then coveting that position so much that we're not going to share it with another individual. And so along the way, we found that number one, we have to start tapping one another on the shoulder. We can continue to mentor. We must begin to sponsor. I tell a story of a few months ago, I had an opening for an associate principal and I received an incredible email from a male sponsoring another male. And the email said, I implore you to hire this individual. Now, what was fascinating is that individual is incredibly skilled and pretty early on in his career. We need more women to do that. I want, I want women to send me that email that says, I implore you to hire this person, this woman, because she holds this skill that is going to be great for your organization. I'll be expecting all of you to send that email in for me. Okay, thank you. 
not, not this part will be edited out, but I just have, I mean, you, you're missing all of my amens and oh my God, and you're hitting the nail on the head and it's just, yeah, Dolores knows I, I have to edit that out sometimes as I get started and I'm about to start shouting over here in a second. I'm just saying like, if you want to move to California, we're hiring. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to say it, that whole bit about the difference between the mentoring and sponsoring Peach uh, part is so pivotal. And each of us on this Zoom right now, I'm sure know of a male that has been sponsored, that has been ushered right through that door, you know, at, at you know, meeting at the sports bar or, or over in someone's backyard, just little things like that. There's someone who pops in my mind right now who is an amazing uh, leader, but uh, I know that's how he got that position. And I just think, you know, uh, what types of opportunities similar to this are available for women? And it can be disheartening, but it's also what propels me to keep pushing on. So, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I do want to say, just to chime in about the sponsorship versus mentorship, I've never thought about it like that. And I do, you it, throughout the book, you give a lot of definitions, and I know we'll talk about that, but the clarity of or the nuance between the two, because I also think that's a reflective piece for everyone, because I almost think, I wonder, men and women that think, I'm a mentor, I'm a, I I am this advocate, I am this ally, but just making that distinct, just because you're spending time and you're coaching someone, have you taken it to that necessary level, next level of reaching out and sending those emails or making those phone calls? I think that's, really something for all of us to think about when we reflect on how supportive are we really in the promotion of others who are just as capable or if not more than we are. And that was one of the the first things that I started thinking about as well, you know, in in my career thus far, how many, uh, number one, just individuals have I sponsored, but then in a more narrow focus, how many females have I sponsored, you know, in addition to the mentorship? So that's a, a, a pivotal self-reflection piece. Men, they are not afraid of asking for that sponsor. Females, we're typically not going to call somebody up and say, you know, I see this superintendency over there. Can you go ahead and let them know about my skill set? Men will do that. And so we also have to be comfortable with declaring the relationship that we want, whether we want a mentor or whether we are looking for a sponsor or whether we're looking for a both and. So the beginning of this book really talks about um, some of the assumptions you hold as authors in addition to a variety of terms that you defined for the reader. Um, What we were hoping you'd share more about was your reasoning behind including your assumptions and also um, why you included some of these particular definitions. This is Dolores. We we spent quite a bit of time about Whose definitions did we want to use? What do we mean by intersectionality? Uh, What do we mean by uh, gender equity, gender inequity? And then we we finally decided we better decide on why we're writing this book. I've co-authored with many different authors and we end up writing two or three different books. And we have to then pull back and say, Uh, what's this book about for each of us, and then how do we get one book out of it? Decided we were very clear on 
why this book and why now? And what were the assumptions that we hold around women as leaders? And, and we became very clear, the three of us, that we knew that women could do this work. Women are highly capable. We also realized they were not at the top where they needed to be. Uh, fewer than 25% female superintendents just doesn't get it. And so the, one of the assumptions is it's not because women can't do the work, it's because the system is set up so that women don't get to the top. And we also realize that there are gender stereotypes that get in the way. So we started taking it apart like that and we said, oh yeah, it's the barriers that we study about in cultural proficiency and it's the guiding principles. So it's the things that get in the way are the, the systems of oppression that have been in place over 300 years in the United States and it's the system of entitlement. And that's kind of hard for some people to take, especially if you are male, white, and have benefited from the system. And the more we talk to white males and white women, sometimes they're not aware of how they have benefited from the system because you don't notice it if you're benefiting from the system. And so some of the responses we get was, you know, the typical, well, wait a minute, uh, I, I've worked very hard to get to this position. Nobody has given me anything. And then I recalled as we were sitting around the dining room table, I told the ladies uh, co-authors, I said, I remember talking to a male colleague who said, you know, doors of opportunity opened for him all the way through his career. And then he asked me, he said, didn't the same thing happen to you? I said, no, I beg your pardon. I kicked down every door. The doors didn't open. I went around them. I kicked them down. I chose another door because they didn't open easily for me. As we interviewed women and women of color, those doors didn't open easily because the system is designed to keep the doors closed or open easily for certain people. So we had to be very clear about what our assumptions were about writing this book because we had to stay on target. And we had to stay on target about uh, who the system serves well and at the same time it doesn't serve others as well or needs to be, serve them differently. The definitions, um, we really, um, as we were writing drafts, uh, we consulted our editor and he reminded us that uh, this is not just simply a, a binary system of sexuality, uh, male and female and, and gender. So um, we talked about sexism, we talked about intersectionality and we wanted, rather than just use these terms, we wanted our readers to know how these terms were used in this particular book. Terms can be used different ways in different contexts. So we took a section right in the front of the book uh, to share with the reader very clearly. These are definitions as they are used in this particular book in this context.
And as a reader, I, I just want to say that I, I think it was so important, the definitions that you had, and there were many uh, of just these, the, you know, the benevolent sexism, the hostile sexism. And so reading these definitions was helpful just as a reader to to know what you really were trying to say as an author. And I did make a connection and I, and I think it's really important now and it's made me reflect as I get into conversations with people, um, particularly my poor husband, because I'm always like, stop. What do you mean when you say this? Mm -hmm. Because what I mean is this, are we talking about the same thing or are we not? And Dr. Kendi does it in How to Be an Anti-Racist too. He has a whole chapter on definitions. Robin DiAngelo, she talks about even the definition of when you say the word racist, what is this? I know she's, you know, her book about white fragility, but it really is, are we talking about the same thing because you cannot engage in a productive conversation when you are you think you're talking about the same thing but you're really you're really not so i just i thought that was very brilliant of you and much appreciated the interesting thing if i may discontinue we realized that the three of us didn't hold the same understanding for some of the terms right yes so we said well if we don't agree or if we don't hold the same understanding we can't expect our readers to do that so right. we took time to do the research and then how are we going to use these terms in the text? We thought, well, we can talk about identity and we can talk about intersectionality in a couple of paragraphs. <laughs> well, we realized we <laughs> needed a whole chapter right. uh, just on identity and intersectionality. And some of the feedback that we've received on the book and uh, people have said, thank you because I didn't understand that, or yeah. thank you, that describes me. I'm not just one person. Uh, it really describes in detail who I am, and that's my story. The other thing we were clear about in the opening of the book is that stories describe who we are, and that everybody has a story. So the book started out to be, um, we, we had to combine a little bit of the scholarly presentation of the research. And then we realized, no, this is about our narratives. These are about stories because that day of the retreat when we thought 10 or 15 people were gonna show up and 30, 35, 40, and then, then people called and said, can I tell you my story? Cause I heard you had a retreat and I wanna tell you my story. And in the book, you'll see those quotes. And we identified the people the women and the men by their identity as they wanted to be known. So it could be a Latina superintendent. Uh, it could be a um, um, male, uh, African-American male. Uh, and that's how they wanted to be identified and, and their story told. Well, and in the end of the book, too, just when people do purchase your book and read it at the end, there's that beautiful culmination of all the stories, I'm assuming, from the retreat, right? The I Am From poem. Our co-author, Trudy, for bringing that strategy, that I Am From story to us. And we were able to do it that day at the, at the retreat. And then we've had people send us a note and say, we do send me that format so that we can do it at our retreat. So it's become widely used now. So again, thanks our lead author, Trudy, for doing that. We made a conscious decision to list in our references, which was uh, labor intensive, to list the first names as well as the last names, which is highly unusual 
in a reference section that has uh, hundreds of references. But we did that intentionally because uh, it, it's kind of that say their name concept. You know, we wanted people to see the contributions of female authors as well as male authors. And so um, we tried with a lot of intentionality to just kind of dissect the book with that lens of gender equity. That's an agreement that we've had with Corwin from the very first book that women's names are, get lost with initials. Uh, and I don't know if you remember that often uh, slave narratives or women would publish books early on and they would use men's names because um, women were not often published. Um, and so they would use men's names so that their books could be published or their stories could be published. So we wanted to make sure that the at least the female sounding name, if you would, would be visible. At first, Corwin resisted that and said, no, that takes up type space and so forth. And we said, no, we really insist. Well, and throughout the book, this is tied in. This is a cultural, culturally proficiency framework. Um, can you explain how you use the framework, how it applies to this examination of gender equity? And then as Dolores, I got this from you, but you always say equity or inequity. How does the cultural proficiency framework tie into this? Well, as, as we started our research, we knew it was going to be about equity. Then all of a sudden it was about inequity. Uh, you can't write an equity plan until you see where the inequities are. Because there were so few female superintendents across the nation, it, it became about gender equity. So the response to that is culturally proficient behaviors. And there are four tools uh, for cultural proficiency, but the two tools that uh, became obvious to us, the barriers that got in the way and the support factors that help leaders overcome those barriers. And those support factors ended up being the guiding principles that you really had to believe that women could do the work. You really had to um, believe that there's such a thing as culture, organizational culture. You cannot not have culture. And everybody has, you bring your culture with you and then organizations have culture. The best way to describe it is you ask somebody, why do you do things this way in your organization or your school? And their answer is, because we've always done it that way. Right. That's the power of organizational culture. Uh, if you want to know what organizational culture is, ask the person most recently hired, and they will tell you what the organizational culture is. So all the, the nine guiding principles of cultural proficiency, as we looked at our data, those were the things that helped the leaders overcome the barriers. And so we asked the question, what, what got in your way and what helped you overcome those barriers? And um, then the more we uh, examine the literature, we saw the same barriers. Okay, so for this next one, I have my pen and paper ready. So what is your advice to aspiring female leaders? Uh, when we thought about aspiring female leaders, we thought about aspiring female leaders in every aspect of the organization. 
um, just that that concept of the assistant principal, the concept of the principal, the director, the superintendent. And uh, the first one was what we started our conversation with today is what's your why? You know, know your why. Why is it that you want to be? Uh, make sure that you're very, very clear in terms of, of what you're looking for and uh, why you want to do the work and what difference you'll make. And the next one is the obvious is, of course, to prepare ourselves well. But what we found in our research is that we are well prepared. We have the competence, but we lack the confidence. We also found that men were just the opposite. And I don't mean to say this in a disparaging way. But here's the reality is that a man is much more likely to say, sure, I'll put my name in the hat and apply for that job, even though I don't really have the competence yet, but I have the confidence that I, and I don't mean to insinuate that our male colleagues are not competent, but I do mean to say that our research showed that males are much more likely to jump where females say, I need two more years, I really should do this first, I should, oh gosh, you know, I don't know that I could handle the budget aspect. Um, so that would be the next word of advice we have for emerging leaders is you have the competence. Uh, just just now, now, you know, find that confidence within you. And uh, I mentioned that I'm an associate dean at the university level and our masters of ed leadership and our doctoral program in ed leadership are filled with women. Uh, 90, 80% of the classes are filled with women in educational leadership in the Graduate School of Education. And I know we are not unique. We have the competence. We have prepared ourselves well. Um, so move forward, have the confidence. Um, the, the others that we've already talked about is uh, making sure you locate a mentor, making sure that you find someone that you have the confidence again to say, will you sponsor me? You know, will you be that person who talks about me to others? Will you be that person who shepherds me, who opened doors for me, who um, speaks on my behalf, who, you know, will you be that person? And then also, uh, will you be, you know, that person that you want as your mentor that will be that person at the end of the day that you can call and say, oh my gosh, what would you do? And those are two different concepts. And for the emerging leader, we say, locate your mentor, locate your sponsor, and make sure that within that sponsorship and mentorship that you find females, uh, because there are some unique attributes in terms of who we are as leaders. Um, another one is dress the, dress the part, but suit yourself. Uh, we say numerous times throughout the book in various ways, you do not need to become a man to be a strong leader. You do not need to wear a suit. You do not need to be a little tougher. You do not need not to wear your heart on your sleeve. Be who you are. That being a female um, can be your greatest strength. Don't confuse that. You know, I remember in my career a couple times, people, uh, someone said, oh my gosh, you know, I heard you cried today. And I turned to that person and said, thank you. Yeah, I did cry today. Don't confuse my greatest strength as a weakness. My greatest strength is who I am. Um, and uh, I identify as a woman. And my greatest strength is, is one that comes from my own unique experiences. We heard many, many of our colleagues say that they were told, you know, you really have to act more like a man. You know, do this to get the job. But it was always act more like a man. And we're saying, no, it's just the opposite. Uh, suit yourself, um, uh, dress the part, 
suit yourself and uh, be who you are. And then I, I would say, uh, finally, is um, also uh, being confident enough to speak out and speak up when there are policies or procedures that are barriers for you as a woman. So whether that's um, uh, flexible hours, job shares, family leave, breastfeeding uh, uh, locations, uh, speak up and speak out when there are aspects of the organization in itself um, that put up uh, unnecessary barriers for you. And don't, don't be afraid uh, to be that person who speaks out because when we speak out on behalf of ourselves, we speak, we speak out on behalf of all women. Well, and clearly it's no surprise, um, the fanfare that has arisen, at least I've seen it firsthand, around the book. There's Twitter chats going on with the hashtag leading well female. There's hashtag leadership um, book chat. You have a Facebook group with over a thousand members. There was a book club that was nationwide. I don't know. I mean, maybe there were people even outside of the United States that were participating. But like, what are you hearing from the readers? Are you surprised? How, how what do you think about all this we are a little surprised <laughs> I want to I want to okay. really thank Trudy she went to bat for us around the title of the book uh, the cover of the book uh, working with our our editor and our publisher uh, it's the way we wanted this book to be and then um, we've had folks ask for t-shirts like the, the cover. we're working on that too we're working on that all right uh you ladies will be the first to get the t-shirts awesome thank uh, you yeah the book sales are just out the top that's great but that's not um you know we we just want the conversation uh trudy mentioned that that actually emerging women leaders are actually taking action now because of some of the things well the, i think it's the last chapter seven uh, talks about okay now that you know what you know what are you going to do so lay out your own action plan the interviews that we did we have stories told that i think women had never told before so a platform to share stories we've received emails each of us about i just in your next book would you add this story oh my goodness the pressure yeah, yeah. well yeah <laughs> but um, and, and hiring practices that are changing because women are saying, I was asked a question that was not asked of the men candidates. Now that First of all, it's illegal, but they didn't realize that it was inappropriate and illegal until they read the book. I told a story that happened to me uh, 40 years ago as an aspiring administrator. And I told that story in a workshop about a year ago, and I apologized. I said, I know this is really an outdated story, but it's my story. So when I finished with the workshop, a, a young woman from the group came up and whispered to me, Dr. Lindsay, please don't stop telling your stories. Because last week, my principal said to me, and she's an assistant principal, my principal said to me, if you expect to be a principal in this district, you're gonna to have to start acting more like a man. So the stories continue over generations. Our hope around this book, as much activity as it's getting, is that it will interrupt the system enough that 
more than 24% of the women superintendents, it'll increase to 27. Again, we'd been to 27, now we're back down to 24, that the data will show us over the next several years that we, we are up to 50%, maybe even more. I think that's a really um, critical concept that we didn't we didn't talk about is that we are backsliding for the first time in our research in decades. You know, we went from two to two percent to six percent to uh, when I became a superintendent in the year two thousand, we were at sixteen percent, and then we were at twenty seven, and then in the last couple of years, we have uh, for the first time we're backsliding to twenty four percent, and you know I think that could be a a segment in itself in terms of why would that be? You know, why on earth um, in the year 2020 are we as women going backwards rather than forwards? And um, I think um, just in regards to your response about the book, you know, we've heard from women uh, particularly who say, gosh, you know, um, I, I'm moving districts now. I realize that, you know, that this is not the match for me. Um, I, I spoke up for the first time. I brought someone with me to negotiate my contract because I know that that's, that's an aspect of who I am that, you know, I, I don't yet have the confidence. Or I tapped another woman on the shoulder and she got the job. Um, we actually changed policies about job sharing, recognizing that when you say no job sharing, that doesn't impact men, that impacts women. Um, so just, I mean, it's just so elating for us to hear that um, policies and procedures and practices and behaviors um, are actually changing. But I think perhaps the one comment that I heard that was one of the most um, heartfelt comments and a comment that filled me with gratitude that we wrote the book was from a young woman and she was a woman of color and she uh, wrote a message and said, I just finished the book and I felt like throughout the entire book that you were writing about my life. And that, you know, I just, uh, that moved me uh, so emotionally in terms of uh, recognizing that we hit the mark on writing a book that people could absolutely find themselves. And whether you are a black woman, whether you are a young woman emerging into your career, whether you are, are you know, you're 50 and uh, why now, or uh, whether you are a woman of the LGBTQ plus community, whoever you are, uh, it just, uh, that was our goal, is that you find yourself there. And you'd find your stories there, and from those stories that you would um, uh, move us all forward towards gender equity. Um, so at the end, we have this segment that we call Tomorrow, This Week, and This Month. And with so many changes, you know, occurring in 21st century education and learning, uh, what advice can you give to teachers or families, um, and in this case, also female leaders specifically, about things to try tomorrow, things to try this week, and also things to try this month? These are extraordinary times and teachers, predominantly women doing the work, are being asked to step outside of their comfort zone to, in their teaching, in going into the classrooms and helping to take care of other individuals, children, while they are actually sending their children to school themselves. And they're worried. They, there are a lot of anxieties there, I think, is, female leaders, we are incredibly positioned 
to really show the compassion for that experience, to really look for the leadership that is rising up in our teachers, predominantly female, and to take advantage of that. You know, I'd say tomorrow in Minnesota schools, teachers start to come back uh, on Monday. And I'd say for tomorrow, really thinking about what are you gonna do? How are you going to support those moms, those aunts, those grandmothers that are coming back into a space where they're afraid? How are you going to encourage them? How are you going to help lift them up, help them to see the leadership skills that they have, the courage that they have? I say this week, really contemplate about your own leadership skills and what has gotten you to this point and how you can use that to lead through and in a pandemic. And I'd say this month, take time for yourselves. This is a hard time to be a leader in education. You know, I will use a little sports, sports adage here to say that we really are just in the first inning and you have to take your time to take care of yourself. Your family needs you, your students, your staff, um, your colleagues, they need you. And so you have to take time to think about ways to take care of yourself so that you can, you can stay in the game for the long haul. For women and for families, I think if we can direct our conversations around language, um, what language do we use in describing women today? I don't want to talk about politics, but I'll talk about politics. Women in national leadership roles, how, do, how are they described and how do they describe themselves? So I just would advise us all to be good listeners because our granddaughters, our daughters are listening, but they're gonna listen harder and they're gonna shape the language for their children as well as teachers shaping the language, men and women. And so um, pronouns are changing, descriptions of, of how we identify ourselves. We are more open in our conversations than ever before about identifying self. So I think for tomorrow, let's examine that language, his and her and they. And let's uh, spend time with our children to describe the why. Why language is shifting today. And language around equity. What's the difference in equity? And what's the difference in equality? And when people say, yes, things should be equal. But what does that mean about equity? My husband, Randy, has a way of describing that uh, equal means that all children have shoes if we talk about schools, equity means that all children have shoes that fit. And he says he didn't come up with that idea, he read it somewhere, but we can't find who to attribute that to. But the difference in being equal and being equitable in our schools. Let's, um, this week, let's just pay attention to media. How are women described in the media? Uh, movies, music, social media. I love some of the memes that occur around women. I don't like some of the others. But let's just pay attention. Let's watch. Let's listen. Let's all be teachers 
about the images that we see about women as well as men. And then let's talk about the future um, this month around the job market for the future. Some children's educations have been put on hold. There's no lost learning. You don't lose learning. You may need to tweak it and adjust it a little bit, but let's talk about as, as educators, it's not so much about what do you want to be when you grow up, it's what do you want to learn and what do you want to teach others? And so one of my granddaughters is in technology. She didn't start out that way and she just wanted to learn more about computers. Another granddaughter said, I want to be a doctor. That was when she was in the seventh grade. And now she's studying world languages as a senior in college. She said, I want to study more about people around the world. But start asking when they're in the first grade and the fifth grade and the 10th grade and in college, what do you want to know more about? And who do you want to be in the world? And so it's about asking questions where people have to think a little bit more. Open-ended questions. Where do you want to go? Who do you want to be? Who are you? And why? And just listen to the language. In this book, we realize that there language, there's language already used that shape boys and girls, separating them as girls as pretty, girls as beautiful, girls as cute, boys as smart, boys as strong, boys as strong leaders, girls as caretakers. Let's just continue to listen and help shape the leaders of the future through the language, the language of today. As I think about, you know, what to do tomorrow, what to do, it, it all blends in, um, in regards to uh, being advocates for other women, we have there's a concept in the book that says when a woman's crown is crooked, adjust it without telling her. You know, it, it's uh, it's it's supporting each other as women. That concept of tapping each other on the shoulder and saying, you know what, you'd be great. Have you ever thought of this? Um, and then when when that woman says, oh no, you know, I'm going to be 50. You know, how can I be a superintendent? I'm going to be 50 soon. You're going to be 50 anyways. You know, be the superintendent at 50. Um, so just that, that constant encouragement of others. And uh, when I think about my career, just those taps on the shoulder made all the difference. It was the confidence that someone else had in me that I didn't see in myself. And um, sometimes that's all it takes. And what we found in our research is that most of the women were mentored by men, and that's fantastic. We need we need our male colleagues and friends and family members uh, to absolutely be our mentors. But we also need the unique contributions of women uh, to sponsor us, to mentor us, to tap us on the shoulder, to reach our hand their hand out and say, you know, come on up, I've got you, I've got you. And so that would just be my kind of overall concept of. What can we do right now? What can we do right now? And uh, the language issue was already discussed, but I'd say right now in regards to nationally, I, I don't believe in kicking people out. I believe in kicking people back in, but I think that, that requires calling people out. 
uh, last night I was on Facebook and an acquaintance called one of our um, female political figures, or the leaders of this nation, um, ugly inside and out. And I thought, how dare us as women call another woman ugly inside and out. I don't care whether you agree with someone politically. That is not the issue. And, you know, I sat with that for a minute and, you know, did the mind my own business, be polite, be reasonable. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I'm going to call that one out. And, and, I'm gonna, and I, I ended my message with our children are watching our children are watching. And if we as women are calling other women, and I don't care whether it is the national leader of this nation or the, uh, you know, or the, the person next door, uh, if we are calling other women ugly inside and out, uh, what on earth are we teaching our children? And so uh, those are just concepts that come to mind in terms of what can we do tomorrow and the next day and frankly forevermore. Well, we find you three women phenomenal and fascinating, and this is a lot to process and think about. And so I do think the conversation will carry on, and we are just so privileged to have been able to sit down and take a moment and, and speak with you three. And so thank you so much. And, and not just thank you for joining us today. And I know you guys have heard this from, from many people and we want to add our thanks, but thank you for writing this mm -hmm. um, because it is something that we all need. And um, what we are praying, what we are believing and, and holding fast in is that this is a step towards progress, um, even in just spurring a, a lot of us, you know, when I say us, I say, you know, women who are leading, who are attempting to lead, who are in the process of leading, who are emerging leaders to keep pushing it forward and be able to tell our stories and, and really know that we're not alone in this. Yeah. Because I think that um, when I can speak about for myself, when you encounter certain situations, you're like, uh, Am I am I going crazy? Did this really happen? And I'm blessed to have some really great thought partners, you know, and and they're sitting here with us on this podcast. And and sometimes I go like, it, it, did that really happen? Am I, you know, thinking, is it just me or did X, Y, and Z just happen? So it, it, those stories. Thank you for listening and thank you for sharing those. Well, I will share a, a story. We were doing a, um, a workshop at a large conference uh, in San Diego, and the room was beginning to fill up with women. Mm -hmm. And I walked toward the back of the room, to, which was the front of the room, to greet folks as they were coming in. And a young man stopped at the front door, and he took a step or two. And I said, uh, good afternoon, how are you? And he said, uh, is this for women only? And I said, not at all. I said, as a matter of fact, we invite you, we encourage you, we need you. And he said, okay, let me go get my, let me go get my buddies. So it's like he was sent <laughs> as an advanced man to see. And he brought a superintendent, a director of HR, and a friend from another district. And in that workshop of 50 women, there were four men and, um, we got a, a nice applause, but one of the men at the end of, 
of the workshop said, I hope other men know what a valuable book and what a valuable workshop this is. We need more men involved. And so then the, rest, the women in the room applauded him. <laughs> we, we say early on in the book that this is not a male bashing book. Uh, we also acknowledge that this is a male dominated system right now. And that it's, it's not about breaking a, a glass ceiling. That ceiling feels like a concrete ceiling. Um, and, and we're going to uh, keep working together. And uh, as uh, thanks for Trudy's leadership and Stacy's engagement in, in schools right now, we're making an incredible difference. And you, young women, uh, don't let those barriers keep you out of the leadership roles that you want. So keep going. I just want to begin by thanking Dr. Trudy Ariaga, Dr. Dolores Lindsay, and Dr. Stacy Stanley. Thank you for your research and thank you so much for your advice. You can get their book, Leading Well Female, A Culturally Proficient Response for Gender Equity from Corwin Press right now. We'll wait. <laughs> and all of our listeners out there, let's remember, be the sponsor, not just the mentor for aspiring leaders. You can also join the conversation using the same hashtag, Leading While Female, or join the Facebook group by the same exact name. And listeners, I'd like to advocate for all of my CNUSD EdChat lady colleagues, Dr. Ivy Ewell Eldridge, Kim Kemmer, Anne-Marie Cortez, and Jenny Cordura. These educators are passionate, intelligent, thoughtful, experienced, and have the integrity needed to lead. If you are looking for leaders, these are your people. Oh, hey. It's true. I also want it in writing. <laughs> so thank you for listening to another episode of CNUSD EdChat. This episode was written and produced by Anne-Marie Cortez, Kate Jackson, Kim Kimmer, and me, Dr. Ivy Yule Eldridge. It was edited by Mr. Ken Pucci. You can find CNUSD EdChat on SoundCloud or wherever you get your favorite podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at CNUSD EdChat. Take care, everyone. Be safe.